Hi, I'm Sean Baker, and I'm the director of Tangerine and the Florida Project, and you are listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It was me. I started up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick them on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's... Definitely civil rights laws prevents that. Also, that's not a great fit even across three billboards. <laughs> okay, on that we agree. Newly minted Oscar nominees Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson in the much praised and, yes, much despised three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, itself nominated for Best Picture. This week on the show, some thoughts on all of this week's Oscar nominations. And though it's a couple weeks late, we'll have a review of the delightful Paddington 2. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. recording this the same day the Oscar nominations were announced. And Oscar season, if you're a regular listener of the show, you know, is not something we usually get too worked up about. There's always a chance we'll end up fighting about three billboards again. So maybe we shouldn't go down this path, but I think we can keep it civil. Yeah, I I think it'll be fine. There is a lot of more positive stuff there to is. focus on. I there was really is. happy with these nominations. Yeah, I was too, generally. We put together our wish list of nominees ahead of Tuesday's announcement. We'll see how many of our favorites made the cut here in just a moment. Later in the show, we'll get to some of my thoughts on the consensus pick for best film of 2018 so far. That's Paddington 2. And our podcast listeners will get a second helping of Last Jedi Talk. We did get, as you might imagine, a fair amount of listener feedback on that review. And we will share some of our own thoughts, having seen it a second time though we both saw it a second time like three weeks ago it's maybe been not the a freshest. little while back not the yeah. freshest but full of spoilers mm. we get a chance to jump into some spoilers we do but first the oscar nominations we're going to start by just looking at those big six categories and looking at the nominees and how we maybe hoped it would work out and where the discrepancies are and Maybe at the end we can get into some larger thoughts, the things that made us happy, the things that maybe didn't make us quite so happy, and we will start with Best Supporting Actress. The nominees are Mary J. Blige for Mudbound, Allison Janney for I, Tanya, Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. So in my case, this is the category I got closest to being right. And that's a good thing because I wasn't trying to predict how it would come out. This is how I wanted it to come out. And I only had one discrepancy. I was hoping that Mary J. Blige, Leslie Manville, Laurie Metcalf, and Octavia Spencer would all get nominations. The other one I was going to throw in was I would have loved to have seen Tiffany Haddish for Girls Trip get an Oscar nomination. Janney got it instead. And not only would I have preferred Haddish to get it just because it really is a wonderful, hilarious performance in Girls Trip. I'm not a fan of Allison Janney and I, Tanya. And that really hurts me because I love Allison Janney, but it's just one of those situations where there are many other performances of hers that I wish were getting the recognition this one is getting. And I'll admit too, I can't even completely articulate. I haven't been able to figure out why I don't love that performance because I don't think she's chewing scenery, and yet there's something about it that's just a little bit too big in a movie that, 
you know, let's be honest, is big in lots of ways that just doesn't quite work for me. So that's the one I'd replace. She's not chewing scenery, but that parrot on her shoulder is. <laughs> True. And the movie really wants those scenes to chew scenery. And this is related to one of my reservations about that film in general, that the empathy it extends towards Tanya Harding in that film, and I appreciate it does not extend towards her mother that Janie plays. And so I do think that that's a limitation to that performance that has more to do with the film itself than Janie. But still, I wouldn't have put her among my favorite supporting actress performances of the year either. Thrilled to see Mary J. Blige Mm -hmm. on that list. She was among my favorites, and I just didn't know if she would be recognized by the Academy. Laurie Metcalf was my favorite supporting actress performance of the year. So, So that's great. I was hoping maybe Michelle Pfeiffer in Mother might get a nod. There was a lot of talk around her performance when Aronofsky's film came out, but I think the maybe a little bit of the pushback against that movie in general and that it came out, I think it was the summer, hurt her. And then here's a real long shot, but our producer, Sam Van Hogren, will appreciate this nod to Kieran Kiki, who plays the grandmother in the Hirokazu Koreeda film oh, After yeah. the Storm. The one I still he was seen. really championing throughout the year. I did finally get to catch towards the end of the year. Appreciated a lot. And she is fantastic in that. Wasn't going to get a nod from the Academy, but I did want to take this chance to note what a great performance it was from last year. Along those lines, I also noted a fantasy pick. Someone you knew wasn't going to get a nomination, but in your fantasy world, it would happen. And for me, it would have been Millicent Simmons for Todd Haynes' Mm, Wonderstruck. We move on then to Best Supporting Actor. The nominees are Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, Woody Harrelson, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Richard Jenkins, The Shape of Water, Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World, and Sam Rockwell also for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So the double whammy, Three Billboards, which I didn't predict. I did not expect that to happen at all. You have to be hating this category. What, What do you love about it, though? Uh, I'm not even worried about the three billboard stuff because Willem Dafoe was my Mm. clear favorite for this category. I think he's a favorite to actually win, which I would love. As I said in our review, I can barely distinguish the performance from this character of Bobby, the motel manager, who I just love so much. So I'm glad to see that others who are maybe have a little more balanced view of the performance itself are recognizing it too. So that's great to see. I had a handful of other wish list picks. Army Hammer, I know some people are down on his performance in Call Me By Your Name, but I think he's actually a linchpin to why that movie works so well. Harrison Ford, I thought, might might be a long shot chance for Blade mm-hmm. Runner 2049 because he's really doing some solid work there. Definitely. Doug Jones, here's a fantasy pick for a fantasy film as the amphibian man in the shape of water. Of course, the Academy isn't going to recognize something that's largely based on movement and costuming, Mm -hmm. but that is a remarkable performance. And then one more here, Barry Kogan, very creepy in the Yorgos Lanthimos film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, as this disturbed young man who insinuates himself into a doctor's life. He is the best thing, I think, about that Lanthimos film. So I had Defoe Richard Jenkins and Sam Rockwell all on my wish list. My two discrepancies, even though I do like Woody Harrelson's performance quite a bit in Three Billboards, I had Tracy Letts, who is brilliant as the father, not a showy role. He's not a showy actor, but that's what's so great about him. He just manages to be so natural on screen, and I love him as the dad in Lady Bird. I love him in The Post as well, even though he has decidedly a role that even if you just came from Lady Bird, if you didn't know who Tracy Letts was, and we know because we're here in Chicago and we've seen some of his plays and he's quite a figure here in the theatrical world, you might watch The Post and go, 
who's that guy? I've never seen him before. That was me. Remember? He, that you was pointed you. it out to me. <laughs> you said, right. yeah, how'd you like Tracy Letts in the post? He's I was so like, what? unassuming. What? Yeah. It's not like you're going to walk away from that film talking about his performance. And yet he is this confidant. I don't remember the character's name, but he's this confidant to Kay Graham. Yeah, like Street's an advisor. He's an advisor. And he just nails every single scene he's in. In he, a very different he's way. fantastic. That's it. That's why I didn't recognize him. And yeah. he is so good. And he was also in The Lovers this year with Deborah Winger, which I didn't see. But I was really hoping he'd get some recognition. And then Christopher Plummer, I think we have to confess, we have not seen that movie. Have Neither not. of us have seen All the Money in the World yet. So can't really comment on whether or not that was a good choice, though he's a wonderful actor. For me, I really was hoping that Michael Stuhlbarg would have snuck in there. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a nomination for all the work he did this year, as opposed to just one performance, not only Call Me By Your Name as the father, we've talked about him a lot over the past few shows, but The Shape of Water, really good there as a, as a scientist who ends up playing a key figure in the plan by Sally Hawkins to free the amphibian man. And then he shows up in the post, too. He plays the publisher of the New York Times. And that's the one that I think we can maybe discount the most in terms of overall impact. But that doesn't mean he's not really good in all of those scenes. And the more I thought about it, even though maybe one of those performances isn't quite hefty enough to really be singled out as among the best of the year, for me, he's such an important part of the cinema year. And especially coming off the show where we did our favorite movie moments and I had that Call Me By Your Name scene and then the final shot of it being my number one. I wanted to give him some recognition. And that scene, which we have spent a lot of time on, is so, I mean, it, it's good, but it's also so Oscar-ready. So mm. I'm actually kind of surprised he didn't get recognition for Call Me By Your Name and, and certainly would have been deserving, I think, too. My fantasy pick here is Kevin Costner, who you know I love one scene in particular, but he's very good in every scene as Jessica Chastain's father in Molly's Game, the Aaron Sorkin film. And I wasn't expecting it, but he would have certainly been in the conversation for me among the top five supporting actors of the year. Let's go then to best actor lead performances. Timothy Chalamet in Call Me By Your Name, Daniel Day-Lewis from Phantom Thread, Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out, Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel Esquire. Last one, a little bit of a surprise for me. Definitely. It's it's Denzel. Denzel. (laughs) So maybe not. Maybe that's dumb to say. Right. And I was talking to a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Josh Youngerman, last night, a listener for a long time. And he said that Denzel's performance in that movie, it's an okay movie, but his performance is what you'd expect it to be from Denzel and is among the best of the year. I had three overlapping picks here. I definitely wanted to see Chalamet get nominated. I wanted to see Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread and Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out. So Darkest Hour, not fair. That's another one that I have held out on watching. And I'm curious to see it. It's historical. Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill. I'm not dying to see it, but I will make time for it before the Oscars. Can't comment on that performance or Denzel's, but if I was picking based on the films I have seen, I would have tried to sneak in Harry Dean Stanton for Lucky, which I think is much more than just sort of a final performance. It really just deserves recognition for the wonderfully human, complex portrait of this this very difficult man that it is. And I would have put Robert Pattinson in there for Good Time, the Safdie Brothers film. So the most encouraging one to me among this group of nominees is Daniel Kaluuya, because I was really afraid mm-hmm. me too. Get Out was just going to get a token nod, probably in the screenplay category. Got that. It got this acting nomination, Best Director nomination, and Best Picture nomination. So I love that broad swell of support for the film. And 
this performance is so deserving. Those are all deserving categories, but this one in particular I thought would get overlooked because acting in horror films, and let's say it, Get Out is a horror film. It's yep. many other things, but it's a horror film. The acting is often overlooked, not so in this case. So that was fantastic to see. Some fantasy picks I had or wishes. Michael Fassbender's dual performance in Alien Covenant almost redeems <laughs> that film. Would love to have seen that. And I've been beating the drum. I thought you were going drum. Snowman for sure. <laughs> no, have to see Snowman yet. I've been beating the drum for Andy Serkis to get recognized for his motion capture work in the Planet of the Apes series. And although I like some of the other films in the series better than War for the Planet of the Apes, he brings that multi-film character arc to a moving, fitting conclusion that really does deserve recognition, not just for being groundbreaking in a new form of acting, but for the way he manages to use that form to do things that even traditional performances have always done so well. So Andy Serkis, I didn't think it was going to happen. I thought maybe the first time around it might have broken that barrier and and people now kind of shrug their shoulders at it. But still, I thought he was great. A couple of fantasy picks for me would have been possibly John Cho for Columbus. And the name I'm sure I butchered back on our top 10 films of 2017 roundtable, Nahul Perez Biscayart. He's one of the leads, because I really feel like there's two leads in Beats Per Minute, that great French film about AIDS activists. We get to Best Actress, and the nominees are Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water, Francis McDormand, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, Saoirse Ronan, Lady Bird, and someone, she's a newcomer, but it's amazing. We see her getting some <laughs> love from the Academy, Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Meryl you got, Streep. Yeah, you said that right. Mm, okay, thanks. In a movie called The Post. So Meryl Streep is the best thing about The Post, so I'm not going to roll my eyes at this. I think she's absolutely Can I roll my eyes just a little bit? Come on. Yeah, I mean... You, you didn't... You, you think well, she's you know, just doing something no, that she could do in her sleep there? No, I don't actually. I think she's really good in it. Maybe it's because I'm lukewarm on The Post yeah. overall that it doesn't excite me. And I've been on record before, even though this is completely absurd. For me, it's just like put Meryl Streep in the Pantheon. You just just give her just you give want her a Meryl Streep ban is I, what you're arguing I, I, I for. Do. Let's let's just put it in plain words. I here. don't I don't want her to be eligible anymore. And I love her as an uh-huh. actress. But let's just say she's let's just say she's like permanently nominated. Okay. Okay. Sure. If that's how you want <laughs> Can to we do that? describe it, permanently nominated, not banned. Gotcha. Sally Hawkins here. How great is that? Yeah. I mean, I was still delightedly perplexed that she was cast in the lead for The Shape of Water. Just as I said in our review, normally a studio would go young for that role, would go quote-unquote sexy for that role. Instead, they found the perfect person Mm -hmm. for that role, and she gives a wonderful performance, and it's great to see her recognized for that. I think we're both going to agree that we would have had Vicky Creeps from Phantom Thread up here in this top five. Absolutely, possibly the best female performance of the year. Some of my wish lists, I would add Salma Hayek for Beatriz at Dinner, an overlooked film, and she is fantastic in it. I was hoping Gal Gadot might have gotten a nod here. I know some people are complaining that Wonder Woman is shut out altogether. And again, I understand it. She's doing the sort of acting that relies heavily on physicality and things that don't necessarily translate to an Oscar ceremony clip. Mm -hmm. But Man, that's why Wonder Woman worked is because she managed to capture the enthusiasm, the excitement and the thrill of being a superhero that has been sapped from those DC movies. She really is great in that movie. I had three here that I was right in line with the Academy. Francis McDormand, Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan definitely wouldn't replace any member of that trio. But that's where I would replace Meryl Streep with either 
Vicky Creeps for Phantom Thread or Jessica Chastain in Molly's Game. And maybe the best thing I can say about Jessica Chastain's performance in that film is, even though our producer, Sam Van Halgren, and I don't always see eye to eye on great performances, he's always been a little bit reserved on Chastain, not not as effusive in his praise as many of us are, and this is the performance that turned him. And I think it's because we see the full range of her capabilities as an actress, including some humor, which is something that she doesn't necessarily always bring to her roles, but you definitely see it here in the title character from Molly's Game. So Sally Hawkins was just right on the outside for me. She was number six, and I'm delighted to see her get a nomination. My fantasy picks, if we were just discounting these other great nominees, Haley Lou Richardson for Columbus. And I still feel like at some point we need to come to terms with what justifies a great child performance Mm -hmm. and how we really separate that because we seem to separate them naturally from adult performances. And Brooklyn Prince, for me, in the Florida Project is doing something that definitely qualifies as great acting. It seems effortless. It seems almost improvisational. But she's certainly alive and in the moment and giving something to the camera that another kid who you threw in that scenario wouldn't give. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that holds those performances back from being recognized is maybe the question of how much credit the director deserves for that. And, you know, you see a kid like Brooklyn Prince doing interviews and and you realize that, she, yes, she is yeah. a kid. She's a rambunctious kid. Well, maybe this is what some people say. I don't know that I agree with this, but maybe Sean Baker deserves most of the credit for that performance in corralling that energy towards what we see on the screen. Yeah. But absolutely, the results all that matters. Well, the results what matters and also what she is inherently intrinsically bringing to mm-hmm. it. I mean, there's something there that she deserves yes. credit for too. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not on board with the a bias against child performances at all. I think they're a little harder to think about, as mm-hmm. we're saying here, but but do deserve recognition when we see an amazing one come up in a given year. Excuse me. Excuse me, miss. Could you give us some change, please? We need to yes. buy ice cream. Because we don't have any money. We just have five cents. Yeah, we just have five cents. And the doctor said we have asthma and we got to eat ice cream yeah. right away. Like, yeah, my doctor ice cream. Guys. We're not lying. It's fine. Thank you very much. There you go. Let's go. Oh, come on. Excuse me. Best director, the nominees are? Can I just say off the top, I love the representation on this list. Yeah. This is the most encouraging bunch of nominees I think we have yep. this year. Uh, we get Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk. Maybe that's a familiar and obvious one. But then we have Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. Yeah, for me, I have three that were obvious picks. Paul Thomas Anderson had to be in here for Phantom Thread. Greta Gerwig had to be in here for Lady Bird, my number one film of the year, and Jordan Peele for Get Out. And luckily, the Academy came through. This is so hard, Josh, because as much as I do love Dunkirk, it was my number seven film of the year, and the directing is is really a major part of that film. When you do think about the scope of it and how Nolan uses time there to to conjure an effect where you really do feel like you're lost in the ether of this this battle. It puts you as much in the headspace of these characters struggling to survive moment to moment as any war film could, despite it not following any of the conventions of a typical war movie. I might have replaced him with Sean Baker for The Florida Project, which we've talked a lot about, my number two film of the year, your number three, and 
Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino. I just think about, whenever you think about best directing, you imagine another director making the film and how different it might be. And I really don't want to think about anybody else's vision for Call Me By Your Name. But Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, my number 11 or 12 movie of the year was just outside my top 10. That's a filmmaker I always like to see get some recognition, especially with a movie that really is so fantastic. You're so right about Nolan, and in the various polls that we were part of leading up to the end of the year, I think I probably ranked him ahead of, say, Peel. But on Oscar night, I'm probably going to be voting for Peel. And in a way, you think about the juggling act he had to do Mm -hmm. as a director. We've had a lot of talk about tone on this show recently and the different aspects of Get Out that he managed to all work together. Right. Horror, comedy, there's dramatic elements. It's it's all there, and that really really is a phenomenal achievement. So again, relieved and excited to see him in that category. And I will be rooting for him with you on Sean Baker as well. I think his empathetic fingerprints are all over the Florida Project. That movie would not exist without the eye that he brings to it for visuals and and for humanity. Yeah, that's it. So so that's what makes uh, the Florida Project work. My long shot, this film has kind of fallen out of favor since the summer, so I didn't think it would get recognized, but she does have an Oscar win under her belt. I thought maybe Sofia Coppola, it'd be nice to see her acknowledged for The Beguiled. It was one of my favorite films of last Mm -hmm. year, but again, hasn't been talked about much lately. We move now to the big one, Best Picture. We have Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So nine total nominees this year. So, Josh, what what went right here? A lot went right. I Mm -hmm. mean, this is maybe the closest my top 10 has ever aligned with the Best Picture nominees. Mm -hmm. I have three films in common here, Get Out, Dunkirk, and the shape of water. So really excited to see that. It, it makes it makes me wonder if I'm doing something wrong, or is is the Academy, mm-hmm. you know, getting up to speed? Maybe Their tastes with, are getting more refined. How I'm thinking about in line things. with Josh. Uh, I, I might, or maybe I might be losing some of my contrarian cred here. But anyway, this is going to be fun on Oscar night to see all these films. A lot to root for. Of course, I loved Call Me by Your Name, Phantom Thread, Lady Bird, and The Post as well. So those are all films that I'm a big fan of. We're going to be a bit repetitive here when we talk about, you know, the ones I would have liked to have seen included. The Florida Project, obviously, I would have subbed in for three billboards. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, haven't seen Darkest Hour yet, so can't quite say how this fits into all this. Right. I'm right there with you on that one. We will remedy that before the Oscars occur. But if you don't have any contrarian cred, well, I definitely... Don't have any if I ever had it to begin with. I had six of nine overlap, Josh, from my wish list. I wanted to see Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, and Three Billboards all get nominations. I'm with you completely that The Florida Project is the one I would have subbed in for The Post. Darkest Hour, I have to kick out because I haven't seen it like you. And then the last one, even though I would hate to kick out The Shape of Water, truly— There was a part of me that was really rooting for Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon and The Big Sick, just as a great romantic comedy. You talk about some diversity, and there's diversity in terms of ethnicity, too, that comes through. But I just mean in terms of genre and style to have a movie like that, which is incredibly well-crafted and entertaining and funny, and also a movie that moves you incredibly I think that would have been quite a feat to see it get a Best Picture nomination. Did get that original screenplay nod, so that Mm -hmm. had to be encouraging Yes, I was happy to see that. What about other things 
you were happy to see? The best animated feature category, I think they mostly got right. I can't comment on the Boss Baby controversy. Did you ever see <laughs> when no, your kids the no bo- Lego the Batman, Baby? right? But right. Boss Baby. I mean, it seems no. like Lego Batman might have been the way it. to go. Um, but hey, the breadwinner, a top 10 lister for me. Glad that got recognized. And I really like Loving Vincent, a golden mm-hmm. brick nominee. Yep. Not a lot of people have had a chance to see it. Came out near the end of the year, but hopefully this nod will change that. Also encouraged by the best adapted screenplay nomination for Virgil Williams and Dee Rees for Mudbound. They were working from a Hillary Jordan novel, and I talked about in my brief review how uh, the voiceover narration, something that can often be a crutch for a film, is essential Mm -hmm. to Mudbound, and they really elegantly weave that into the film. Best Cinematography, I mean, you can't really argue with the nominees. No, this is one of my favorite categories. Darkest Hour, you know, again, we haven't seen, so I don't know if it's deserving in this area. But really, no Alexis Zabe for The Florida Project. Mm. We're sounding like a broken record, but cinematography, again, so crucial to what made that movie work. Roger Deakins getting another well-deserved Oscar nomination for Blade Runner 2049, and I didn't even really love that movie. Also, Hoyt Van Hoytema for Dunkirk. So who are you going to kick out? I right. know, it's it, it's hard. Let's just say Darkest Hour, because we don't know. We don't know. So best costume design, of course, Phantom Thread, but costuming was equally important to The Beguiled. The designer there is Stacy Batat, so would have liked to have seen that thrown into the best costume design category. We mentioned cinematography, but the other great nominee there is Rachel Morrison for Mudbound. Mudbound Another which, crucial element to that film. Crucial element and... Why it was cinematic and should have been shown in more theaters, yes. I would say. And making history as the first woman ever to be nominated, which is hard to believe at this point, but the first woman ever to be nominated for Best Cinematography. You already mentioned Kumail and Emily V. Gordon getting that Best Screenplay nomination. The other one for me, of course, is seeing Agnes Varda and J.R., their film that they co-directed my number five movie of the year, Faces Places, get a nomination for Best Documentary. I will be rooting for that film. Obviously, at the same time, that's a category I'm very weak in. Haven't seen any of the other nominees. I thought I would have seen at least one because I know it was in your top 20 or at least your top 30 films of the year, Jane, the Brett Morgan documentary. I thought that was going to get one of those five slots, and a lot of people thought it was going to get a Best Doc nomination. It did not. But yeah, that's a category I need to do some more homework on. So overall, maybe we're surprised that for once they seem to get it right. I don't have any surprises here or snubs that really offend me or bother me the way past years have offered us. The one big one would be generally the lack of appreciation for the Florida Project, especially as it has gotten a fair amount of love, I believe, through the awards circuit Mm -hmm. so far. It did get that nomination for Willem Dafoe, and hopefully that will translate to a win. But as we have now said a million times, it would have been a Best Picture nominee for me. Some of the other performances could have been recognized, and absolutely the cinematography, the editing, all the other technical aspects of that film. Yeah, but you know, I still feel like the Academy has only so many slots they're going to give to these, quote-unquote, smaller films. And and maybe they... Well, you know, when you say edgy, too, and this came up on the Top Ten show, how among the people we've talked to, no one is really challenged by the Florida Project in terms of the abrasiveness of the characters. But uh, Michael has talked about how mm-hmm. he's heard from Chicago Tribune right. readers who really turned and off. We heard by from it. one, and very memorable. We did hear from one emailer. That's right. So maybe that was a factor when it came to Academy voters. We look forward to your thoughts as always on the Oscar nominations. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So will Paddington 2 be among the 2019 Oscar nominees? It's certainly a favorite. 
at this very early stage in the game, considering the reviews it's gotten. Adam shares his thoughts on the film when we come back. Plus, we go full spoiler and respond to listener feedback on Star Wars The Last Jedi. Stay with us. Sarge, I'd rather be at home with the wife and kids. Would you now? Yes, Sarge. Michael Palin and Eric Idle circa 1983 in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. The Meaning of Life, a very funny movie, but is it the best comedy of 1983? We're losing the millennials, Adam. We might be here. Other 1983 comedies that should be up for consideration there, National Lampoon's Vacation, A Christmas Story, Risky Business, and Trading Places, and they are up for consideration in our Best of 83 poll over at filmspotting.net. We also threw in Scorsese's very dark comedy, The King of Comedy. There are definitely some laughs in that Jerry Lewis and Robert De Niro movie. Absolutely. We gave you those options. We wanted to know which one you thought was the funniest, and we will share the results on next week's show. But right now, it's really tight. There is a movie that's in the lead by about four or five percentage points, and then we've got another four movies that are all basically locked within two percentage points of each other. So this is one of the closest matchups we've had in a long time in a poll. Well, it's it's a hard one to crack, and th- this is related to what I was saying to you earlier about a lot of these 83 films having vague memories of. That's the case for all of these. Really? King of Comedy I've seen recently and The Meaning of Life I hope to catch up yeah. with before we record. I probably need to do that. But other than that, I, I like can vaguely remember seeing these movies repeated times and laughing a lot at them. That doesn't help me in determining which one huh. is the best. Maybe Gut Reaction, A Christmas Story. Yeah, it, it belongs in the conversation. For me, probably the one that gave me the most laughs, certainly as I remember it, when I was eight years old, National Lampoon's Vacation. That's a movie I've seen yes. so many times, Josh, that I, I could quote it right now, even though it's been probably 15 years. Yes. I could quote most of that film for you right now. The same is true, actually, for Trading Places. That, for me, was one of the films that my friends and I just quoted incessantly. Okay, so I think A Christmas Story, maybe I regard as funnier, but I think National Lampoon's Vacation might be the better movie. Okay. I mean, it's, it's in contention. I've got a lot of work to do, but it's in that top 10 of really? the year for me. Might yeah, be a I top think, five. I just think it's, uh, yeah, it's a landmark, ridiculously moronic film. Well, the movie that's being left out here that deserves more love is that Tom Cruise film, Risky Business. It's really on the outside looking in, and I'm a fan of that film. And I would say it's the least 
consistently comedic, yes, maybe of all of is. them. Although, you know, That's obviously, fair. as as you said, the king of comedy is very different as well. I think those two stand apart in terms of tone, maybe, than these other that are really almost laugh a minute. Mm-hmm. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. It's right there on the main page. And as I said, we will share the results of that poll next week when we share our top five films of 1983. Not just comedies. We're talking the entire gamut of movies. And that's part of our year-by-year countdown. We've been going basically from 2004, the year before film spotting started, back through the years. We've skipped around a little bit here and there, but we've gotten through those early 2000s. I think we are through the 90s, maybe one or two years we need to go back to, and then we're working our way through the 80s and only have, I think, one more year after 83 to reckon with. That's 1980. Michael Phillips, as he often does, will join us for the top five of 83. He was a little older. A little more sophisticated so in 83. So you're saying he won't have national he will not. vacation in his he top five. He certainly will not have vacation <laughs> in his top five. Also on that show, a blind spotting review of David Cronenberg's 1983 sci-fi horror classic, at least cult classic, Videodrome. James Woods as a sleazy cable TV programmer. Also Debbie Harry stars in the movie. This was the movie that I think we agreed Way back in March 2015. Mm -hmm. Wow, I feel bad all of a sudden. Episode 528. We put together an entire list of movies that were blind spots. We combined them. We agreed that these are the five movies that we need to see. And we are going to embark on that project. And over the course of a year, we thought we will fill in those blind spots, watch these movies and talk about them. Here we are almost three years later. We still haven't seen Videodrome. But don't feel too badly. We have seen here we're a top five. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie did that. Yep. The Battle of Algiers, okay. we did that. We did. So that means after Videodrome, we'll just have Killer of Sheep and Late Spring. So at some point... You've made me feel let's a little say, better. Let's say maybe by 2022, we'll have seen yeah, those. hopefully by then. In case you missed last week's show, or maybe you just somehow skipped past Massacre Theater, we wanted to revisit that quickly, let you know that there is still time to enter. You get a chance at winning your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. We got this note from listener Luke Schultes. He heard it and is somehow clueless, Josh. I have no idea what the movie is this week. After hearing Josh's performance, I tried Googling, quote, movie that Tommy Wiseau made while drunk, but nothing came up. What in heaven's name are you talking about? You may have misgivings, but don't go believing that, Jack. That way lies damnation. I mean, Luke's not wrong. I I think, isn't he (laughs) describing the room? I mean, that's the room, right? Good point. You do have until January 29th to get that Massacre Theater entry in. Just email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at our website is also where you can find our merch page. Just click on shop right there at the top. And in addition to Josh's book, Movies Are Prayers, that's that's being used in church groups and schools all over the country. Yeah, I keep seeing this all, on social media. All over the country might be a bit of an exaggeration. Well, I'm going it with is, it. It is fun when someone says, hey, we're having a group discussion Places about the Places that aren't Chicago. I, I, I'm assuming that means they've read it. But, you know, you can't guarantee that. Right. That book is available. Also, Film Spotting t-shirts. And there's a sale going on up until the 28th of this month, $14 Film Spotting t-shirts. So please do check out our shop at filmspotting.net. If you click on events over there, that's where you can find all our latest movie passes we're giving away. As we're taping, we don't have any new movies to give away advanced screening passes for, but by the time people hear this, there may be one or two up there. We are always adding new opportunities, so please do check that out. And one more link that we have to mention. We had a survey, very successful, and I say successful because a lot of people actually bothered to take the time to answer it. It was very helpful for us as we were thinking about what 
listeners' favorite segments of the show are. This is a one-question survey. Literally, if you click on it, it will take you one second to complete this poll, and it really will help us out as we think of all sorts of aspects of film spotting and how to improve it moving forward. So just go to filmspotting.net. There is a link at the top, but also you can go to filmspotting.net slash survey and find it there. So I've got one quick note related to the book, actually, I wanted to throw in here. It has to do with my visit to the Search for Meaning Festival. This is going to be Saturday, February 24 at Seattle University. They bring in about 50 authors and artists. I will be speaking on Movies Are Prayers. And I figured I know a handful of film spotting listeners who do live in the Seattle area. Some of them I've had a chance to meet before. Others I've only interacted with via email or social media. So good time to have a meetup, right? I think we're going to try to do that the night before. So February 23, still trying to determine the exact time and where we'll be. But either follow me on Twitter or Facebook, Larson on Film, or jump over to the Film Spotting Forum. I'll put the details in there as well once they get settled. But yeah, I'm looking forward to being part of that festival and also meeting up with a bunch of listeners. We will also put that on that events page. So filmspotting.net slash events. Here's my question. If you find the meaning, will you tell us? I don't know how many festivals they've had. This isn't the first. I mean, they're still there searching. Have, there have been many attempts. Fails. To find the meaning. They're all fails. They haven't yet. So okay. I wouldn't put my money on it this year. <laughs> Not with you there. No. We are also hoping that you will participate in our upcoming film spotting marathon. We are due. February is the right time. February, March, it's when we like to debut new marathons. These are usually six film series where we're filling in blind spots in our cinema education. Occasionally, one or both of us have seen one or two of the films, but typically we are looking at films by a certain filmmaker or from a certain country or of a certain genre that we feel like we need to be more well-versed in. And this time, it's a marathon we've been dying to get to for some years. Well, and, and let's say that we are coming off two strong ones, right? Agnes Varda mm-hmm. and the Argentinian cinema. Both of those marathons right. were really rewarding. Do you think this one has a chance of living up to those? I do. Vincente Minnelli. We are finally getting to Minnelli. We're going classic Hollywood, and we're watching six of his movies. I've seen one of them, The Bad and the Beautiful. We'll get into the lineup later, probably next week on the show in more detail. That's another one, though, that you can find at filmspotting.net. Click on Marathons, and we will post the full lineup so you can start getting prepared. I've seen The Bad and the Beautiful. You've seen Meet Me in St. Louis, which I haven't. Otherwise, four other Minnelli films, part of that marathon that we both haven't seen. One that we've excluded because we've both seen it. Maybe his most well-known film, An American in Paris. That was part of an early film spotting marathon, our musicals marathon that Sam and I did. And we have both seen that movie. So we're going to leave it out, try to get to some that are a little bit more off the beaten path, though I think all six of them you would say are well-known Minnelli films. We're excited about it. Michael Phillips being the Minnelli champion, the Minnelli lover that he is, he's going to be part of this marathon. I'm envisioning he'll be here for the beginning. He'll be here for the end and he can share his awards and maybe in the middle, he can check in and criticize us for everything we're getting wrong about Minnelli. Yeah. Let's hope this goes better than the Marx brothers. Mr. Gruber. Oh, what's this? Oh, <laughs> this is London. It's wonderful. Aunt Lucy always dreamed of coming to London. If she saw this, it would be like she were finally here. Aunt Lucy! Oh, Paddington. This is perfect. 
a bit there from the Paddington 2 trailer. Adam, I don't know what is going on, but my house is resisting the bear. I tried again this weekend to get them to see Paddington 2. Making time for all these 80s movies. Yeah, doing my These homework, 80s curios. Doing my and job. The best reviewed movie of all time. <laughs> and I'm a fan. You can't get him And to. I'm a fan of Paddington. Well, it, here's the other irony. So the weekend before, we ended up watching Empire Strikes Back. Guess what won out this weekend? What? Return of the Jedi. <laughs> They're like, no, let's you watch can, Return of the Jedi. You can't say no to your kids. Also in 83 films. So look at, how about mm, that? I okay. was making the More family homework. happy, getting some homework done, and Paddington 2 fell by the wayside. I think I've got a niece staying with us in a few weeks. She's quite a bit younger. <laughs> okay. She and I are just going to go. They can, if they're not going to join us, too bad. So you're the Paddington 2 expert at this point. Great. Should I be excited about getting to see it? Absolutely. You should be incredibly excited. There is this disconnect we hear about sometimes between critics and audiences. It's usually critics are deriding a film that audiences think is great and they're turning out in droves for. Here, it's exactly the opposite. It is not that it means anything, but the most well-reviewed movie of all time, according to Rotten Tomatoes, 100% the most reviews that are positive across the board of any movie. Just beating out, I think, Lady Bird recently had it until someone decided to post a rotten review of it and knock it down a peg. But Critics love this film and we're raving about it. And of course, it doesn't help that we're a week or two late coming out in defense of this movie. But critics love it and nobody is going to see it. Tragically. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's just bombing, as I understand it, at the box office. Ridiculous because if the first one made enough to merit a sequel, where is everybody? Right. And I know you being the Wes Anderson aficionado that you are, that's even more reason to want to come out and see this film, to maybe see that influence. And it came up on Twitter and some of our listeners were asking us about that influence. I bristle at it a bit at those comparisons, even though I get it. The color palette, the undeniable whimsy yeah. that we see it was on display definitely here. In the first one. Yeah, it is. And the OCD-like focus on production design. That Anderson element is there. Here, a portion of it even takes place in prison. So naturally, you start thinking about Grand Budapest Hotel even down to the fact that Paddington, like Gustav, Ray Fine's character in that movie, is this truly unique prisoner who really doesn't belong in this environment. He's got a worldview unlike any of his fellow inmates and kind of changes them a little bit along the way, probably more so in the case of Paddington. But those scenes in Grand Budapest, for me, were the worst scenes in that film. <gasps> Especially because Anderson just completely mangled the use of violence and how he handled it there in those sequences. But here... In Paddington 2, Josh, they are among the best scenes in the movie, and Brendan Gleeson is a big reason why. He plays Knuckles, this this bear of a man who's a chef who tastes that orange marmalade that Paddington makes, and he's just eventually worn down by his politeness, and we see them befriend each other. A big strength of this movie is the characterization of Paddington, the way he comes to life in this environment, the physicality of this obviously CGI character. He's constantly getting stuck to something or rubbing something against his paws. So you never question his his tangibleness. You never question his physicality and his presence within the space. Do you think this would be considered an animated film? Like as we're talking and thinking about Oscar categories, I don't, I don't know how voters mm. think about that. I don't think you know? so. Or if there's a percentage of scenes that need to be animated, there's probably some guideline, but I yeah. was wondering that today. No, I mean, because it is otherwise a traditional film Yeah, and, and it fits, Paddington fits so seamlessly into it that, that that's really a trick of it. But I probably wouldn't think of it that way. Many others might. But I think 
what really stunned me about this movie in general, because I don't remember the first Paddington. I remember seeing it. I remember liking it. I don't remember liking it as much as I do like this film. But I imagine that they probably could have gotten away with, as a sequel, phoning it in just a little bit, making a piece of entertainment for the family, for kids, serviceable work, but to an extent phoning it in. And that certainly could have come through in one of the main performances in this movie, which is Hugh Grant, who is kind of riffing on his own persona to an extent. Now, obviously, Hugh Grant as an actor has never been a grand kind of Shakespearean actor or a theatrical British actor, but he is a little bit of a has-been now, or he's one of those guys who maybe is sort of past the prime of Hugh Grant being in Notting Hill opposite Julia Roberts as the big love interest or Four Weddings in a Funeral. So he's riffing on his own character and persona a little bit, and he's one of those actors that falls into that category for me, Josh, of a guy who I never would have pegged to be good as a character. And what I mean is, he's very good as Hugh Grant. I've liked him in movies, right. including Notting Hill, as Hugh Grant. But someone who is truly theatrical, putting on lots of outfits and different accents and voices and alternating between being very subtle and sometimes very grand. Never in a million years would have thought Hugh Grant would pull that off. And I'll be shocked, Josh, if we're not sitting here a year from now, and I don't think it's going to be probably getting Oscar talk or an Oscar nomination, but if I'm not talking about Hugh Grant, is still one of the best performances of the year. Now then, simmer down, simmer. All right, a little bit more. I'm sorry, I'm at my worst tonight, I really am. I am tickled the deepest shade of shrimp to have been asked here tonight to open this wonderful old steam fair. But you know, when Madame Kozlova created this thing all those years ago, she most certainly was not thinking of people like me. Whatever I am, VIP, celebrity, I hate all that stuff. No, no, West End legend, that's another one. And as I said, he could have just said, okay, I'm going to play the part. I'll give it the effort, the minimal effort that it needs, and it will be fine. But he didn't. You can tell he's really having fun and that he gave it all the love and care that it needed. And that comes through in the direction, too. Paul King, it would be wrong to just write him off as somehow kind of siphoning from Wes Anderson. He is his own filmmaker here. That really comes through in this movie where it's full of sequences, like one where the whole plot is predicated on him finding this book. He's trying to pick out the perfect gift for his aunt, the the bear who raised him, who's going to come visit, or I think he's going to send it to her. And he comes across this pop-up book. And as he's looking at it and becoming enchanted, it's a pop-up book of London, the sights of London. He then ends up in the world of the pop-up book. And the sequence didn't need it to be effective, but that extra bit of detail, that extra bit of love and care and imagination, it just so closely matches what Paddington, the character, the love and care that he puts into the things he becomes interested in and the things that he loves and his sense of imagination. So it's a wonderful kind of virtuoso sequence, but it actually adds something as well to the character and our understanding of why he is so enamored with this gift. There's a wonderful extended action sequence at the end of the film, too, that isn't just competent, just what it needed to be. It's really thrilling, and it's expertly choreographed. It's, I think, as good as any action scene we might see this year, which seems weird to say about Paddington 2. So this movie was a constant surprise to me, and it was a constant delight to me. 
Sounds great. Yeah. I mean, you've really drunk the marmalade with that Grand Budapest knock, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out and, and give it a fair shot even on that count. A great cast all around. You've got the voices of Michael Gambon, Imelda Staunton, Ben Wishaw back as Paddington. Very good. Sally Hawkins, a wonderful quirky turn from her. Hugh Bonneville, Jim Broadbent, Tom Conti, of course, Hugh Grant. I said Peter Capaldi. You've got the filmmaker, Richard Ayoade. He shows up in a very small role. It's just populated with great faces, great characters who, just like Paddington does when he's going down the street, you just love seeing them turn up. So, yeah, I hope more people do seek out this movie. And if you enjoyed it as much as I did, or even if you didn't, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, so Adam, you're pro-Paddington, mm-hmm. anti-Porg. Yes. I'm pro-Porg. We settled that. We, we've got that down. But there are so many other questions to answer regarding The Last Jedi. We're going to have a spoiler conversation plus listener feedback to our original review when we come back. Stay with us. Hey guys, my name is Chad Sanders from Charlotte, Michigan, and I loved The Last Jedi. I mean, when Leia flew, did I whisper, what, into my popcorn? Sure. Did I look at my watch once or twice when they were running around the casino planet? Yeah. Did I get whiplash riding Ben Kenobi's emotional carousel? Who didn't? But none of that matters. It's gorgeous. It's fun. It's funny. And like The Force Awakens, it brings me back to first grade, fourth grade, seventh grade, when I obsessed over the original trilogy. I collected the trading cards. I played with the action figures. I even tried unsuccessfully to get mom to buy C-3PO's cereal. There's, there's just so much to love in this movie. Sweet lightsaber battles. That amazing salt planet. The crystal critters. Luke kicking astral projection. And the kid with the broom at the end that is all of us. Four stars. Wars. Four stars. Wars. Cut that last part. That's stupid. Okay, bye. That was Chad on The Last Jedi. Obviously, very, very positive. And we tease this going into the break, but we are going to get into spoiler territory here, Chad, maybe just a little bit. But just in case you're wondering whether or not you should go any further. Yeah, if you haven't seen The Last Jedi yet, you shouldn't listen to this. Or if you have no intention of seeing it, you've read all the articles and read all the the angst over this film and all the plot points that people are dissecting, well then sit it out and hopefully enjoy the conversation and enjoy the great voicemails. We have a few more that we're going to share here. There is a lot more feedback to come. Our responses to that feedback. This is a movie, Josh, that we saw together initially on December 11th. We then came right from that review, talked about the movie, and that's, of course, available if you look for it at Apple Podcasts or over at filmspotting.net. Yeah, and and that was tough for two reasons, because it's our immediate reactions, right? right? We're still processing it, which we've said many times isn't always ideal. And we were so limited by extra sensitivity, not wanting to spoil anything. So yeah, looking, looking forward to a chance to dig in a little deeper. We can open up a little bit more here. Now, you saw it again on December 16th. 
with your family. And I saw it with my family on December 26th. So it has been a while and maybe not quite as fresh as we'd love. It's not like The Force Awakens when we revisited that where it had been a couple of years and then we saw it right before we sat down. We got to dissect it a little bit with a clear mind outside of the larger conversation that is going on culturally. I did have two thoughts, one main one upon rewatch that I want to get to here in a moment after some more voicemails, and then we will dive into that feedback and hear your reaction as well, Josh, anything new that popped into your head having seen it a second time. But first, let's go ahead and hear from a listener here in Chicago, Sarah, who is also very positive about the film. We're going to start with all the happy stuff, Josh, and we'll get to the negativity. We'll get to the darkness to try to balance out the light. I saw The Last Jedi three times, twice in a 24-hour period, and it just kept getting better every time. I really liked The Force Awakens in 2015. It felt like getting a piece of my childhood back, this time with a character I fully identified with in Rey. But The Last Jedi felt like the whole excitement of being a college freshman again. A whole new world with new characters opened up, and I was being taken in directions I never expected. Cranky Jedi Master Luke filled me with joy despite his dark background because he'd been allowed to have a history beyond the second Death Star. The moment Kylo Ren killed Snoke was the moment I knew this movie had my allegiance forever because it didn't care at all what our expectations or theories were. We were just going to get a really good movie with startling imagery. The hyperjump collision, the wings homage in the casino, Luke facing down the First Order on the Salt Planet. I could go on. I've been raving about this movie ever since it came out. Sure, we've had good Star Wars movies recently, but this one is the first since 1983 that hasn't been building toward or rewriting A New Hope, and I, for one, am completely here for it. Yeah, having just rewatched Return of the Jedi, I, I do agree with her on that last point about this being distinctly different from A New Hope and that, that Death Star idea looming at the end. So I did appreciate that. Mm-hmm. We cited, hinted at, didn't want to get into it too much, but in our original review, that hyper jump collision. The one that which, befuddled audiences when the audio went out. Yeah, which, which is just a brilliant directorial touch it and is. sound design touch, and watching I would it say. a second time, knowing that there had been that little controversy, if you will, it seems to last like five seconds. Oh, I yeah. can't believe any audience was thrown by that. No, I, I honestly can't believe neither. it. There wasn't for a second. I didn't detect that that was absolutely intentional. The Wings homage, that's one of those where not having seen Wings, yep. I, I didn't have the reference, but I knew it was calling on something, mm. you know, just just knowing Ryan Johnson's background as a cinephile yeah. as well, and him even speaking when we talked to him in a 20, what was it? 2014. 14 interview, talking about the films that he and the crew had been watching to inform the making of The Last Jedi. I knew something was going on there, so it was fun to, to hear about that afterwards. Okay, so a lot of positivity, of course, as we all know. Not everyone has been so pleased with The Last Jedi. Let's also hear from Katie. She's in Champaign, Illinois. I respect this film's effort to subvert expectations, especially since it's in a franchise that's been part of authoring some of modern filmmaking's most entrenched archetypes. So I applaud Johnson et al. for giving some tough love to both characters and audiences by essentially saying, we can't live in the past forever. It's time for a new story. However, that means I didn't always know what we were supposed to gain from spending time in scenes and with characters who were always intended to not have a payoff. You can have elements of the film go somewhere unexpected, but they need to go somewhere, and I didn't think that was always the case here. That's not to say I didn't enjoy many parts of the film. Everything with Ray and Kylo was excellent, but that's my two cents of criticism on a film that's received something like two trillion cents. Anyway, thanks for a great show. Take care. Thank you, Katie. And I think the key word that stands out there is expectations, because we also heard it from Sarah. And Sarah loved the fact that she knew that this is a movie that said, 
we know you have them and we're going to subvert them anyway. And here you've got Katie saying, I respect that effort, but it doesn't mean all of those choices necessarily paid off. And we'll hear from some more listeners who feel that way. She did like everything with Ray and Kylo, which was also a big strength of the movie for me. So we're getting just just a little bit more negative. And now we get to another voicemail here, Adolfo, who is mixed, but we're going to hear a lot of positivity too. Hey, guys. Uh, Film Spotting World. Uh, this is Adolfo Acosta of the Essential Films Podcast. Uh, right here from nearby Arlington Heights, longtime listener and fan, but felt the need to chime in here with some Star Wars uh, Last Jedi talk. Uh, this is definitely a divisive film among the Star Wars fanboys. Now, I'm a longtime geek going back to the 80s, and there are two ways to view the film as a regular film and as a Star Wars film. And as a film, it's fun, it's flawed, uh, but it's still a piece of you know, fun blockbuster entertainment. Uh, there's a giant plot hole from The Force Awakens about some map leading to Luke Skywalker that doesn't jive with Luke wanting to be left alone in this film, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, and while Kelly Marie Tran's Rose is a nice addition, she doesn't really have any on-screen chemistry with John Boyega, and their mission is ultimately pointless, and the second act really drags and needs some editor's scissors. Now, as a Star Wars film, I loved it. We don't really need another Emperor Vader Luke dynamic. We already got that with Return of the Jedi. And I thought that's what we were going to get with Snoke, Rey, and Kylo Ren. And I'm glad they threw a curveball at us and killed off Snoke, a terrible character anyway, leaving Kylo Ren to be the main villain of the series. Plus, all those complaining about Luke not being heroic enough, last thing I wanted to see was Luke turn into Yoda or Obi-Wan. We've seen it. I love that he has an actual arc in the film. Plus, in a world of Force ghosts, do we really think that we've seen the last of Luke Skywalker? Come on. Anyway, love the show, guys. Thanks for letting me uh, voice my two cents. So he says it's flawed, but overall, a fan, a big fan of The Last Jedi. And he mentions, I will throw this out, that he thought there was a giant plot hole from The Force Awakens about the map leading to Luke Skywalker. And this is the thing. We can really go down the rabbit hole with some of these things. Yeah. And then we're, we're having to I'll then bring in. in yeah. That's about as far. <laughs> we're having to bring into this the fact that we have seen it a month ago and also maybe we aren't as up on all the lore and all the intricacies of everything that happens in all of the Star Wars movies. But he thought that there was a plot hole. There was something just blatantly wrong about the fact that Luke very clearly wants to be left alone, doesn't want to be Mm -hmm. found. And yet it appears to Adolfo and I'm guessing other listeners, other people out there that he deliberately put some key to the map in R2-D2 at the end of The Force Awakens. They've got that one part of it and then he he wakes up and he's got the other key and they put it together. It's like, well, why would he give R2-D2 that if he didn't ever want to be found? And I'm not going to get into it here. If listeners want to write in, I'll share the link with them or share some of these thoughts. But I did find an article that addresses it an Entertainment Weekly article from 2015 when the movie came out. And it says, no, they never intended for people to think that Luke put that in R2-D2. It's actually, it goes back even further, Josh. It goes back to the first Star Wars movie in A New Hope when he he syncs up. Remember when R2 syncs up with the whole Death Star and yes. downloads all the maps? Yes. He's pulling information from that. Okay. It's information that I'll the Death that. Star, that the Empire had, that then when he wakes up at the end of the movie, he wakes up because he goes, oh, I've got a piece of information that will help make this clearer, got that it. will make this map clearer. I buy and That's it. what was expected to happen. So Adolfo, he said he's now lost his nerd credibility <laughs> once I set him straight on that. But Luke Skywalker is is the big thing here. That That last comment he had about whether or not we've seen the last of Luke and some of those people complaining about him not being heroic enough. So my two revelations, and they aren't grand revelations at all, on second viewing were one, 
the humor, which really stood out to me the first time as, as very bold. And I'm not saying it overall isn't bold. I just mean really in your face. And mm-hmm. wow, Ryan's really taking some chances. From the opening scene. From the very opening With scene Paul. on. Yeah. yeah. Watching it a second time and not even thinking about knowing where the jokes were, some of them I didn't remember at all, it felt actually much more organic to me and in line with past Star Wars films in terms of some of the sarcastic comments and the humor. Now, that that moment with Hux, that that voicemail, you know, I'm on hold for Hux, that still is a broadly comic moment that whether it works for you or not, and I actually lean a little bit more towards not, to be honest, that's the one that just is objectively the most distracting from a humor point of view. If you if you like it and you think it's great, that's one thing. But I'm saying it does stand out compared to all the other bits of humor that I think are interspersed throughout the film. I, I found the humor just, as I said, much more organic and natural to the story. The second thing, though, that really stood out to me is, I was thinking about you, Josh. You were in my head as I watched The Last Jedi because the thesis of your review, the main criticism of the movie for you was that you felt like you were more eager to move on from the past, the Star Wars legacy, those characters, Luke specifically, than this film is, than Ryan Johnson is. And he he was hesitant, it seems, to really turn the movie over, turn the franchise over to these new characters. He wasn't as eager as you were. And I disagreed with that mostly after the first viewing on the grounds that even though, yes, we could count up screen time and scenes and quibble over how much or how little Luke and Leia should get, I felt like both he and Leia are there completely in the service of those new characters. Leia especially, she's just there for Poe's development. Everything about what she does and her choices are about Poe and him becoming a better leader. Luke, to many chagrin, really doesn't do anything in the movie until the very end except help Rey better understand what the Force is. And as a key part of that, she does discover the truth about her origin. For me, that's that's hugely significant. That's a big epiphany yeah, beyond he's, beyond he's just the Yoda, obvious, right? He's her Yoda. He, he's he's kind of functioning in that way for sure. And I'll get to more about that in a second about the epiphany and why it's significant beyond this is something she's been looking for the answer to forever. But when I did watch it a second time, I thought I thought your thesis was ironic because it couldn't have been clearer to me on the rewatch that on both a textual and a metatextual level, the whole Last Jedi endeavor is predicated on reckoning with and repudiating the past. Kylo Ren actually says it in the movie. I feel like this is the thesis statement for the entire film. The Empire, your parents, the Resistance, the Sith, the Jedi, let the past die. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, kill it if you have to. That's what was so odd about it. That's the only way to become what you are meant to be. So Rey's epiphany, now she can finally let that past go, that myth she's clinging to. She can go on and fully move on with her life and establish her own identity, just as the movie this movie is letting the past go. The myths so many are clinging to and, and want to continue to cling to, it seems, from the feedback. But it's, it's finally establishing its own identity for the series. The way you do that, though, isn't to just cut out or ignore the past, to cut Luke out completely. You have to confront it. You have to reckon with Luke. He's the character whose journey has been at the core of this entire saga since the very beginning when we all fell in love with it. And that means that Luke has to be a major character. And then... You can move on, which the movie in the end does finally allow us to do. And that's why, too, Kylo killing Snoke is so important because it's part of this larger structure. He's breaking from his past and the myths that he's clinged to. It's really a brave new world at the end of The Last Jedi where Rey has to forge her own identity as a Jedi. She's untethered. Kylo's untethered. He has to define himself without any 
parental guidance and even the resistance at the end is finally untethered from Luke Skywalker, the savior. And so maybe it didn't move fast enough for you, but it did break. It did break completely. And I think that's significant. And I like the fact that it did reckon with Luke the way I think it needed to in order to finally move past him. Yeah, that's why I cheered when Snoke got taken care of because mm-hmm. that's it, it's like, okay, you've been telling me this for this movie. Now you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wouldn't want Luke to be cut out completely at all, but how bold would it have been to have given him these moments you're talking about? I, I didn't want him not to be in this movie sure. or not to get significant attention, but to have given him that in a handful of scenes at the beginning and then saying, okay, now we're going to do it, even when it comes to Luke. There's just there's just that kind of clinging to him, and and this kind of come. It's tied in for me too. Is is really a difference? I think we have a take on Hamill's performance, mm-hmm. and this is a little bit related to what Adolfo is saying, but also you know this more general complaint that Luke isn't heroic enough. He's not the Luke of Return of the Jedi, and I, I saw an interesting. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt response. To I haven't this. read it see yet, it? but I heard about yeah, it. Yeah, I read it on uh, the AV Club, and uh, he just kind of, you know, he absolutely defends that. Of course, Luke can change and be a new character, and I, I agree with that completely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it would be boring if it was just the Luke pulled from Return of the Jedi and plopped into Last Jedi. I think for me, there's a little bit of an inconsistency to who this Luke is is in the many scenes we get for him. I mean, he he's also part of the humor. He's very jokey at times and flippant, right. but then he's also supposed to be this burdened, brooding mystic at other times. And I almost wonder if a little bit, you know, Hamill's off-screen personality and our perception of him has significantly changed over the decades. And and now he's, you know, he's thought of as this genial guy who has a really nice relationship with the legend of Star Wars, right? He He engages with fans in a way that's respectful, but he also is playful about it. And I see a lot of that in the performance, which I don't know if it serves the story. Hmm. Though, like, maybe those should have been two separate things. So, um, Again, glad Luke was in this. Uh, I just, I just think maybe sure. give him one or two good scenes and let Ray get on with yeah, it. Yeah, you know, that, that might have been really even more kind of uh, of a bold move. Sure, that's fair. But I also think, and we disagree a little bit on this based on something you said. I think in the initial review, I don't see those scenes that we get with Luke on the island as in any way really making him heroic. We get one heroic shot. There's one shot where he's shot from a little bit of a a low angle and and the wind is blowing and he seems like this master Jedi. And it's that opening shot, which then Ryan Johnson immediately has him toss the lightsaber, diffuses it with the joke and completely makes him out to be now well, well, that's what people are complaining about, right? That he's not right. heroic. I and, agree and, with and that. And scene after scene, though, on that island, I mean, from the swigging of the milk and all those things. Yeah, that's he, kind he of the looks jokey mostly Luke. ridiculous throughout every scene there, which for me is just another element fitting into this larger scheme of demystifying Yeah, Luke. and that's kind of part of the, the Comic-Con Hamill, let's say. Right. Okay, like that's how, that's my perception of Hamill from Comic-Con. But then to also have him be this, this guy who wants to shed, this morose former Jedi who just wants to shed it all. There's a bit of a disconnect in those those scenes for me there. Okay. We have some more feedback here, and I promise for all the haters out there or the people who are more mixed on this film, we will get to some listeners who share your reaction. But 
a bit more general praise from longtime listener Chris Moody. He's in Tetbury, UK. Loved your discussion of TLJ, especially as I postponed my normal Pavlovian reaction to film spotting appearing in my podcatcher until after I'd seen the film, instead rewatching The Force Awakens and listening to your review and Ryan Johnson interview. That, as it turned out, was the order I had been seeking. And while TLJ is by no means a perfect film, it probably won't even make my top 10. I think its flaws come in the execution rather than the ideas. Everything with Luke and Ray is terrific, and the Luke final act showdown is fantastic. As he strode out from the carnage of Ren's all-guns-blazing assault, it felt like a mashup of Gandhi and the Terminator. Relentless, <laughs> peaceful resistance. He was Schrodinger's Jedi, simultaneously there and not there, and the shot of his robes falling to the stone as he becomes one with the universe, well, let's just say, I had words with the cinema staff afterwards about how dusty the room was. Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver are, in my opinion, near perfect in their roles, and I love the presentation of the Force as universal and democratic, and that came through in those scenes with the child slaves, too. At the end, my thoughts were, they could do almost anything with this next. And I think that's the point. The rebellion will come from anywhere and everywhere, not just the handful of survivors on the Millennium Falcon. So some great stuff there from Chris. Thank you for those comments. I do want to acknowledge, too, he sent us a note. A little bit of a tough year for Chris, and our thoughts are with him and hope things are working out for him in the new year. We also have, Josh, a correction of sorts, and I was waiting for this, though, to be honest, when I said it, I was waiting for you to jump in and tell me how I had gotten something wrong about the prequels. And maybe you were just being respectful and you didn't derail me. But Eric Stewart, he sets me straight. Really enjoyed your review of The Last Jedi, especially appreciated what you had to say about how the underclass is represented in the film. It's an important element of the story, and I thought it was handled perfectly. But I did want to point out that while you said that examining class differences is something new for the series, it's not. Anakin Skywalker himself was a child slave on Tatooine. And for all of its many flaws, The Phantom Menace does do a good job conveying a specific point of view about how a class of people or creatures in poverty can be exploited to facilitate life for elites. In fact, one of the most surprising and ambitious aspects of The Last Jedi, and ultimately its most rewarding, is how it builds on ideas and even story threads from the prequels, without itself being at all prequely. Ryan Johnson's done a flat-out stellar job with this film and has achieved what I would have just a week ago thought was impossible. By elevating and building on what the prequels had to say about societies in decline, he has redeemed those films to a degree, to a small degree, to be very clear. They're still awful films. Sorry, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. I might have just added that. Thanks for doing what you do. My wife and I listen to you guys all the time and feel very thankful for your show. We even sometimes talk around the house about what we believe your opinions would be on various movies, TV shows, music, and even foods that we enjoy. Oh, man. Adam is not so high on beats. I'm, I'm very in I'm favor really of beats. I'm really not into beats. Yeah. This is almost like we need a film spotting version of Alexa where you can just ask Alexa, <laughs> what does Josh think of this? And it will answer. So I'm glad that I was set straight there. And I did think about that to a small extent. I, I will confess that I don't remember much of the prequels. I really don't. But I still wonder if I watch them, would I feel it? the way I feel that representation of the underclass in this movie, where especially it goes back to it at the end and that whole sequence at the casino, post-casino, is predicated on our being aware of that strata that's at play. And I, I just felt like my recollection of the previous Star Wars films is that element's there, but it's kind of just meant to be part of who the characters are and we understand it and it's not really as much in our face. No, it it, it is. I think the problem is it's in our face with 
Jake Lloyd also being in our Maybe. face. And, and I will even say that performances are not the strong suit of the prequels, but Anakin as a child, he's a, he's a child slave and he works for, I, I'm not in depth enough to remember the creature's name, but mm-hmm. he basically has this creature that flies around and, and lords over him and his mother. And mm. so, yeah, it's definitely there on the surface. Um, this does tie in a little bit to this idea of, you know, Ray being from this underclass picked out of nowhere. And I just wanted to get kind of your opinion on this. A lot of people have expressed their enthusiasm and excitement over the revelation, Kylo Ren says this, that she does not come from the line of Skywalkers. In fact, she doesn't come from anyone important. Her parents were nobodies. And people seem to be taking that as... First of all, that Kylo Ren at his word. I don't know if we can do that. No, but maybe secondly, we can. I mean, he could very well be lying. But secondly, I still think this means, and I don't care one way or another, but I still think this means that the ability to use the Force as a Jedi travels genetically. I mean, it, just because we know or yeah. told her parents aren't Skywalkers, that doesn't mean she still couldn't come from a line of True. Jedi, mm. right? Mm. So it's it's just something that I think is still very much. Up in the air, or am I misreading? (laughs) When we're getting into the bloodlines and the DNA, this is where I glaze over a little bit with (laughs) Star Wars. You're starting to see your own rabbit hole. I recognize, but people are really glomming onto this like that. It's a huge turn for the franchise, and some people are angry about it. Well, and I'm kind, and I kind of feel like we don't really know. No, we don't know yet. I think we do definitely have to see where it goes and, and how it plays out. In the moment, I found it very dramatically satisfying to find out that she isn't from this long line. And then larger picture, it fits in with everything we just got done talking about in terms of demystifying this whole world and this universe. And I understand some people are bristling, but that's, that really is the boldness of this. And as I said, if it wasn't also dramatically satisfying, that revelation for her that, you know what, no one is coming to save you. No one is going to show you your path. You come from nothing. If you're going to be more than nothing, it's on you. That, that's what this whole film was about. So I love that. Now, if as we move forward, there's some tweaks in that and we see that we've been deceived a little bit, I'll probably be okay with that too. Evelyn wrote in. She says, I'm a longtime listener and daughter of your pastor friend, Robert Lewis. Longtime listener and supporter of the show. I was curious about your thoughts on the new information that the writer-director, Ryan Johnson, started writing The Last Jedi before The Force Awakens was even completed shooting. This, to me, explains the inconsistencies that I noticed in the narrative, such as the first film's vision that Ray has and the actual events that happen in the flashback in the second film. Overall, I love the film, but that information was shocking and almost upsetting for reasons I'm not entirely sure of. To add a little bit more context, because I'm I'm not geek enough here. I did ask Evelyn if she could expand on that discrepancy, and she said this, I personally felt that Rey's vision included some of the actual destruction of the Jedi Temple and Luke's immediate reaction, and it hinted we might see the full thing and that it's more dramatic of an event than The Last Jedi presented. It didn't seem as dramatic, and it was a disappointment. Luke even considering killing Kylo, his passing out and waking up to the destruction, and not really showing Kylo younger, either good or bad. The first movie just set it up to be more, and I felt let down on that particular plot point and that it was very inconsistent between the two films. Hmm. I, I can't say that I found those sequences disappointing. In fact, I kind of like how we revisit it. Is it three times in The Last Jedi? Maybe. And, and each one has a different vantage point mm-hmm. and a different... I mean, I thought that was pretty sophisticated for something that could have just been a straight action flashback. Yeah. Now, I haven't read enough of this stuff, but from what I've picked up on social media, this does seem to be established that that Ryan has said that he did start working on this. Even, yeah, this, that's new to me. Right. That's what I saw somewhere else, too, that apparently he started working on this. Then again, maybe this all came up and it's sort of a fabrication to explain why people don't like it, is that it's 
quote, inconsistent. But it seems to be the case that he was working on this while that film was still in production. So he wasn't necessarily thinking about all those things. But as I pointed out during our revisit of The Force Awakens, there are things that Ryan Johnson gets. There are aspects of the Kylo Ren character that he gets right or expands on that he could only know from really having seen The Force Awakens and really knowing it intimately. And, and almost so, knowing some sense of the audience yes, response to yes, it, too, 100%. right? So, so, yeah. so I, I'm not sure how much I completely buy it, but people seem to be saying this. And if it is true, I guess that is surprising. You would think that the next film in this this trilogy of movies would wait until that film is fully finished to to know what it's dealing with. But We'll have to hear more on that from the experts out there in Film Spotting Nation. We got this bit of feedback as well from Kevin Matthews, who is overall a fan of the movie, but he's got one of those pesky plot points that he has an issue with. I love The Last Jedi and am definitely as pro-Porg as I am pro-Ewok. Whoa, careful there, Kevin. But I see a major continuity error. Simply put, the thousands of Resistance fighters who died aboard the life pods fleeing to the secret Resistance base would have otherwise survived had Poe not committed mutiny and had Finn slash Rose not gone on their boondoggle of a mission to the casino world. But hours after this annihilation, Leia and the Admiral praised them for this demonstrably failed mission. Yet, Finn and Rose had immediately understood the horrible consequence of their actions that led to Fenster's betrayal, <laughs> Fenster. which led to nice. the destruction of the fleet. Had Poe, Finn, and Rose let the leadership handle the situation, everyone would still be alive. It really bugs me that the screenwriters overlook the need for Poe, Finn, and Rose to suffer some major consequences. So I think this might speak to one thing you appreciated is the Poe Dameron character arc in the film. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that that's what's trying to be done there, but I do think the level of his rebellion or his, you know, leading a mutiny, it is a little little, um, extreme and confusing, um, those sequences. So maybe that leads a bit to what Kevin is talking about Yeah, maybe so. I I think that Kevin is onto something, though I do think there's kind of two separate points to be made here. One, if you're just dissatisfied with that whole boondoggle of a mission, and look, I said during our review, I was dissatisfied with it just on a pure storytelling level. And just in terms of holding me as an audience member, I got lost a little bit in the morass of the casino, even though some of the visuals were great. But this idea, if you're just unhappy about the fact that we spent all this time trying to complete a mission to try to do the right thing, and then that ended up leading to disaster, you don't like that. Well, that's that for me is one of the themes of the movie is people doing what they believe is the right thing, trying to be a hero. And sometimes there are consequences to those actions. I'm fine with that. But where I think Kevin may have a point is if it's true, and I just don't remember this part, if it's true that Leia and Holdo, when they get back after this disaster that really has, it is because of what they say in front of Fenster. And I'll go with Fenster too, Benicio Del Toro as the Fenster smuggler. If they didn't say that in front of him, then he can't sell them out to the Empire. And then the Empire can't start firing on all those pods that are leaving. It's true that their stupid mission is what ultimately leads to the reveal that otherwise would be a secret, and all those innocent people die. So if it's true that then when they get back from this failed mission, they're praised for it, that does seem to be an inconsistency that I don't know how you reckon with. I, I, I think I'm so far down the rabbit hole, I can't see the light. Okay. <laughs> I probably didn't help give you any guidance down that rabbit hole. A. Scott Perry from New York, New York says, I'm such a Ryan Johnson fanboy since seeing Brick way back when. And so I was giddy with excitement about this movie, even dancing in my seat, popcorn in my lap as the opening crawl began. But when the final credits rolled, one thing was devastatingly clear. 
The Last Jedi is a pretty poorly made film. Yes, there were some great visual moments sprinkled throughout, and John Williams knows how to write a score, but so much of this thing was just plain lazy, and even downright cringeworthy, that as the film played on, I sank lower and lower in my seat, looked at my watch a number of times, and ended up head-hung low, sick to my stomach at movie's end. So disappointed, so very sad. I don't have words. Now, I wrote back a little bit and said lazy just isn't really the word I'd use because I am thinking about all these chances that Ryan Johnson is taking, the ambition of it. And A. Scott Perry says, to clarify, I didn't mean in terms of effort, which the movie clearly had much of in making happen. I meant lazy in terms of plotting. The overarching structure of the slow speed spaceship chase to me lacked credulity and felt like an easy cheat. And the many forced subplots happening for no believable reasons as well. Time and again, many choices just didn't have real justification. And many motivations seemed face value flimsy and buildup seemed continually deflated. All that to say, the choices made seemed to me to be lazy. I've loved your show since 2005. Thoroughly enjoy listening to your well-informed thoughts. And that's a good clarification that he makes there. And it's one I, I do have trouble arguing with for the reasons I just reiterated. There's a lot in terms of the plotting, and you just said it too, where maybe it's it's a little bit too confusing, some of the motivations and some of the behavior that we see, that lazy still to me is just not the right word to use here. I don't think there is any shortcut that's being taken with any of these decisions. If anything, I'll go back to the word ambitious. It, it maybe tries to, <laughs> tries to pull off too much and have too many things swirling at once. Well, now we get to the real the real meat of it, Josh, the real negativity, the real backlash against The Last Jedi. Here's Richard Porter. I've been a longtime listener to your podcast for years, and regardless of if I agreed or disagreed with your reviews, I always enjoyed it. That being said, your review of The Last Jedi is way, way off. Between subplots, Finn and Rose going to the casino, which go nowhere and eat up too much screen time, and plots that start to sync up with Return of the Jedi and then cut off abruptly, this movie is a mess. Why create a buildup for Snoke that goes nowhere and ends so easily with a clean cut of the lightsaber? A key problem with the last film, and this one is inconsistency with power. Kylo Ren was able to train under Luke and Snoke, but has a hard time fighting newbies Finn and Rey in the last film. Kylo easily kills Snoke, but can't pull the lightsaber from Rey, who in turn was powerless against Snoke. Rey easily knocks down Luke, yet Luke has new super Jedi powers that allow him to show up on distant planets as an image while able to both hug Leia and hand her imaginary dice. Also notice during that scene where the entire battle stops and everyone stops moving or talking as Luke talks to Leia, nonsensical and not likely. Getting back to I love these... the idea of not likely. In this whole universe, not likely, but okay, go on. Getting back to these new superpowers, how is Leia, who has never shown any powers of the Force, suddenly able to survive an explosion that draws her into space and allows her to fly back to the ship? These are all silly added powers for no reason except to try to wow sheepish new moviegoers. Lastly, the Force diversity in the cast... We're going to come back to that. Okay, We'll good. come back to Mary good. Poppins' Leia. Lastly, the Force diversity in the cast is shoved down your throat as all the white men are evil and the perfectly diverse cast are all good. I don't need these ideologies shoved down my throat. I go to the movies to escape the polarizing world we live in now. I'm a huge fan of Johnson, loved Brick, and consider Looper one of the great sci-fi films of all time, but he wrecked this one big time. Hmm. Well, the diversity, we can point to lots of characters in the film who are male and white and aren't all evil. And you know what? More diverse faces and people isn't just a good thing on camera for political reasons, because it just should be that way, but because it's more interesting. It's more interesting to see those faces and to have those perspectives and those backgrounds. So I obviously completely disagree with Richard on that. I think that's one of the strengths of this film. And I, for me, I'm sorry, there's no more discussion about that whole Kylo Ren training, but yeah, we, got barely, that. we, 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 we settled that. that. I'm sorry, that's settled. And, and Ryan covers it again in this movie. Those when he things says, are also called surprises. Yes, they're surprises, but as Ryan covers in this film, 
when Snoke says it to him, he's so distracted, he's so mentally beaten down by his failure that guess what? He doesn't perform the way he should. There's no inconsistency with power in these films to me at all. Okay, that said, let's go ahead and talk just a little bit about Flying Leia, because I think we can't talk about Star Wars and The Last Jedi without getting into it. Not a fan of Space Leia. Okay, I'm not either. So let's talk about why. Now, this fits right in with exactly what he said, the other complaint from a lot of viewers about Luke Skywalker having this amazing power to be a hologram at the end and pull off this feat. In the moment, there's nothing about what happens at the end of this movie that bothered me, that seemed unrealistic. I was completely willing to buy the idea that over the years, Luke has somehow honed this this ability and this power. I'm with you. No problem. And and it worked for me completely. So then, perhaps as a contradiction, we can get into it, why aren't we able to accept it with Leia? Let me me back real quickly and though say, does he touch, I did think the second time, does he touch Leia though when he is this projection? I I don't remember even though I've seen it Well, he fights with Kylo Ren too, so. Well, that's the other question. Do, Do their lightsabers ever I would exactly think they cross. Do. do they cross? I that, remember him ducking once. That for me is all part of the projection though. That there is some... It, there, it's there's like, some physicality it's to it. Patrick Swayze and Ghost. He can make things move. Oh, now I get way. it. Okay, now I get it. Right? Yes, completely with you. All right, okay. Space Leia. Space Leia. Space Leia. Well, well, first, Ryan Johnson on Twitter, famously, memorably, last week, I don't know if you saw these tweets, but he had a little bit of a back and forth with some Star Wars fans and he did this visual series of tweets, a thread, where he showed his bookcase. And the book, one of the books on the bookcase is The Jedi Path, which apparently are these real books that came out and you can ascribe as much meaning to them as you want. I'm not familiar with them, but the sacred text, if you will. We then see his hand on the book. We then see the book opened and the title at the top of one of the chapters is Advanced Force Techniques. And then the next shot is Doppelganger permits a Jedi to create a short-lived duplicate of himself or herself or an external object that is visually indistinguishable from the real item. And it goes on. So he's saying, basically like, look, this is in, this is in the Jedi manual. Don't blame this me. Is, yeah, this is something they can do, and I'm just pulling <laughs> from that. So I thought that was, that was pretty great. Now, of course, that then generated all the Leia talk from there. Someone said, anything in there on Mary Poppins Leia, thanks asking for a friend. He said... I never really understood the complaint. Can you articulate it for me? Is it just that Leia shouldn't be able to use the Force? And someone says, my question is, how long can one live exposed to space in Star Wars? And Ryan says, you can't. For long, she's not out there long, and it nearly kills her. And he adds, I guess the fact that she's in zero G and that space offers no resistance meant to me that it wasn't a big feat at all, kind of minimal, in fact. Now, I'm going to admit I didn't take any science classes in college. I went to a liberal arts school where I was able to just take a bunch of English and other liberal arts type classes. Physics, all that stuff lost me. I meant to have my son Holden explain to me what Ryan Johnson is saying there. I don't know if you follow it, Josh, but no, yeah, I definitely don't. And someone will close this out here. Someone said, I thought about that. So they apparently, or at least are pretending to get it. But then I also thought about what kind of physical torment that being in the cold vacuum of space would do when you're trying to channel the force. How could she focus to do that much with little to no training? And here's where Ryan Johnson drops the mic because she's a badass mother. And, and you really, you know, you really can't argue with that. So we're going to try to argue with that. What doesn't work for you about Mary Poppins' Leia? Okay, so two levels. And one I recognize has no validity because it was just how I was experiencing mm-hmm. the moment. Um, I had already 
processed that she was gone. Me and too. It was, it was like emotional. That's the biggest thing for me. Like it was, it was like, yes. wow, I had my Han Solo moment. Totally. I liked, I liked the bold move. I liked how it was done. And I was ready. It, I was fine yes. for it to end there. Me too. Now, it's not fair. So it's like pulling the rug out from under. A little bit. It's it, it's just like, yeah, a little bit. That's not fi- like a fair reason to criticize what goes on to happen. It's just my personal response. Mm-hmm. I do think without getting too nerdy about it. And again, watching these movies, what is, what's really good about the original trilogy is how strong of a character Leia is, right? She's in control. She takes action. She gives back to the men, including Han Solo, trying to boss her around. Right. And yet she's never really given her full due as coming from a line of Jedi. Mm-hmm. Even in Return of the Jedi, when she finds out about this, she doesn't have to become a kick-ass Jedi. That's that's fine. Like, maybe that is too cliched of a way to go. But just watching Return of the Jedi, we were kind of like, oh, like, it would have been cool if she had taken that next step. Right. No indication in Force Awakens is there that she had in any way. Some so there's, people point to her seeming to know when Han dies. Yes. And, and okay, that's an element. Yes. Just like in... In Return of the Jedi, she knows uh, there are things that it's she an empire. recognizes. I think it's an empire. I don't know, maybe what you saw in Return of the right, Empire is, is definitely empire. When, when he's hanging. Yes. And, and, and I think, and actually Ryan actually tweeted those images. Like, yeah. that for him is proof that she has the Force. Can you still argue, though, that it's not... It's a whole it's different. Not, yeah, it, 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 she's it's not, too big. It's too big of a. a she's leap. not a badass. Like this, we'd is, like to think she she's is. not that level of badass yet. I guess so. And you know, as as was in this back and forth, there was reference to the visuals. I don't think it's one of the strongest visuals. Yeah, and and Ryan says she's floating, not flying, as some people think she is, but. If the visual just didn't work for you, that's fair. He's yeah. just such a good guy, uh, and I love that he's engaging. Well, right, in these, like he these even conversations. has to bother, right? With this. <laughs> but but there is something. I think for me, the reason the visual doesn't work, the disconnect, where a lot of us are reacting to that, where it seems like she is flying, floating, whatever you want to call it. It goes back to what you said, though, about we've processed this moment. Like honestly, you're already starting to grieve the loss of Princess yeah. Leia, and then when you see her all of a sudden floating through space, and and the other problem for me is no one really. No one acknowledges it. There's, there's not there's not one moment where we see a reaction. They just open the door for her yeah. as, if, as if they always knew Leia well, had this power. So that does indicate that, you know, maybe we just haven't seen her use it before, but she has. Right. But I then guess. but then you, you would hope that we as an audience would. Right. If you're gonna exactly. do something that major yeah, yeah, yeah. in that moment. And and it, it does seem like it, it just maybe took <laughs> took too big of a leap there with Leia. But the best part as we said about Ryan, the last bit of this exchange is he said, thanks, man, growing up a fan. And this is to another viewer who wrote in. Actually, I think uh, Peter from the Slash Film Daily. He said, growing up a fan, the debates over stuff like this has always been the fun part. We can't let that change. Very so, cool. I mean, he has as good of a head on his shoulders about all of this as anyone can possibly have. And that's how you know he's going to come out the other side of this. And I think he's going to make some more great films. We could get to some more negative feedback on the movie, but I think best to leave it there. And I'm sure this is a movie like The Force Awakens. Maybe a year or two from now, it will be worth seeing it again, maybe in a different light and seeing how our take on it changes even then. Yeah. I'll definitely be watching it before episode nine for sure. That is our show. If you have any thoughts, comments you want to share, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in an upcoming show, 312-264-0744. At filmspotting.net, you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives. Those are in the show archives. While you're there, go ahead and vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We'll be talking the top five films of 1983 next week, so we want to know, what is 1983's best comedy? And we have a couple 
multiple options for you there. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. If you like this show, you're likely going to also enjoy the Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Maze Runner, The Death Cure, Hostels. This is a 2017 film, technically starring Christian Bale, directed by Crazy Heart Scott Cooper. Wes Studi also stars. I do hope to catch up with this one. In limited release, a movie that we got chastised for by one listener on social media for not making part of our Golden Brick consideration, but it's really just coming out in theaters here in 2018. Maybe it's one that will be in the running this year. It's God's Own Country. A closeted Yorkshire farmer gets involved with a Romanian migrant worker. Next week on the show, we will continue our year-by-year countdowns. We'll look at the year 1983 and have a blind-spotting review of Videodrome, one of the two David Cronenberg films that came out in 83. The other was the Stephen King adaptation, The Dead Zone. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. You know what you could do as soon as I'm done talking here? Take one minute. Go give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Official Oscar page. Testing one, two, three, mic check. Microphone check one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Oh, we just got the invite to Fifty Shades Freed. <laughs> Wednesday, February seventh. <laughs> I guess this <laughs> this brings us right into hot mics. <laughs> you you I suggest even... I suggest a uh, we go see it and we record immediately after. We should. Fresh reactions. After after all of my love for the first one. <laughs> love is maybe bit too strong of a word. Since you haven't seen the second I one. I still didn't bother to see the second one. I don't think we need don't to. Plan to I see think the we third. can jump right into Freed and we'll be just fine. <laughs> and will we be freed from the series then? Will that happen? Uh, is this a trilogy or is this like an, an endless thing? I just assumed it was a trilogy. I, th- I think the fourth book they're chopping into three movies. <laughs> I mean, why not? Why not? I'm just going to go ahead and delete that one. Delete that invite. I thought you were going to say Black Panther because I heard that the L.A. critics or oh, really? something got, no. I think they got their invite. I am excited for that one. So my only big weekend thing was I took, I took Sophie to see Wicked. Saw that. And yeah. I had not read it or, you know, any part of it or listened to it before and just went in knowing nothing other than it has been on Broadway for like 15 years and that it's this retelling, this alternate history, if you will, on The Wizard of Oz. And it was really good. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Yeah, we've seen it twice now. We saw it in Chicago a number of years ago and then in New York about a year and a half ago. I do like it. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's it's really, I mean, this is true of so many productions, but really depend on those two lead roles. And they were incredible in the Chicago production. Good. Really good, both of them, phenomenal, and and I've seen that on Twitter too. A lot of people have commented that that they they belong in the conversation, you know, for the the best people playing really? this character. Okay, that, that they're they're no slouches at all. They're really fantastic. Yeah, Sophie loved it. I loved it. It's, I mean, it's one of those plays. I didn't realize that it was written the book in '95. Mm-hmm. 
I understand probably why, what influenced that in the mid-90s. And then you, you think about it coming out in 2003, post 9-11, is when it debuts in 03. So it's hmm. being worked on in the wake of, of 9-11. Yeah. And then you watch it now and you see, you know, you see this witch who's being labeled a terrorist and she's, right. you know, literally fighting against the patriarchy in the, in the wizard. And it, it, it feels incredibly prescient and, and timely right now. And then you go back, like I said, to 2003 and you can imagine everything it's saying about the sort of vilifying the other mm-hmm. as it's doing. Unfortunately, timely for any decade, well, right. for any generation, but I certainly felt the political aspect of it watching it in the theater. And it's, yeah, it was just a good time. So I'm glad I saw it. Did you do anything? No, I've just been um, lost in the year 1983. Been watching a lot of 83 films. I, I saw. I was depressed you because watch one? we, you know, usually think 80s, we were just starting to watch a lot of movies, maybe not quite so choosily in the 80s when we were young but you feel like you have some grasp on those years and then I made the list of stuff I need to see oh my goodness well I think that's maybe we'll talk about it when we get to that show obviously but that's maybe where we're a little bit different because depending on what list you're looking at and what titles you're looking at I did my initial sketch just glancing at you know googling best films of 1983 and looking at the list yeah I've seen 95% 95% of them. Yeah, because I wasn't like that. that was my wheelhouse. When I was eight years old, that's all I did was watch HBO. Yeah, that would help. So I've seen almost all the big films from that year. Now, I will say that having not gone through it with a fine-tooth comb, there's only one movie for me. This is the first time that I can remember in any of the year-by-year year countdowns where I only see one, for me, just unabashed masterpiece. One. Okay. I don't know what my top five is at all. Yeah, I can see that. And I think for me, you know, there were a lot of those titles that I saw parts of at some point Mm -hmm. in the 80s, but haven't really sat down and watched the whole thing. So I felt like I had to do a lot of homework. So I watched a couple of of those, hope to get to a couple more uh, before we sit down and do that show. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.